Justices, <coughs> Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and I respectfully dissent from today's decision overruling Abood v. Detroit. There's no sugarcoating today's opinion. The majority overthrows a decision entrenched in both this nation's law and its economic life. As a result, it prevents the American people acting through their state and local officials from making important choices about workplace governance. And it does so by weaponizing the First Amendment in a way that unleashes judges now and in the future to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. For over 40 years, Abood struck a stable balance between public employees' First Amendment rights and government entities' interests in running their workforces as they thought proper. Under that decision, a government entity could require public employees to pay a fair share of the cost that a union incurs when negotiating over terms of employment, what are often called agency fees. But no part of those fees could go to any of the union's political or ideological activities. Abood well understood and explained in three simple steps why some governments would view agency fees supporting collective bargaining as in their managerial interests. Not all governments, but some. First, a government may view an exclusive representation arrangement where one union represents all employees in the workforce as facilitating stable labor relations. In particular, such arrangements streamline the process of negotiating terms of employment and eliminate the potential for any interunion or inter-employee conflict. Second, the government may be unable to avail itself of those benefits unless the single union has a secure source of funding. The various tasks involved in representing employees cost money. If the union doesn't have enough, it can't be an effective employee representative and bargaining partner. And third, agency fees are often needed to ensure such stable funding. Without those fees, employees, even those who like and support the union, have every incentive to free ride on the union dues paid by others. That's because union benefits have to go to all employees by law, regardless whether they pay dues. And in that respect, unions are very different from any other kind of interest group. At the same time, the Court acknowledged the First Amendment interests of dissenting employees. It recognized that unions often advance political and ideological views outside the collective bargaining context, as when they contribute to political candidates. Employees could well object to that, and governments had no legitimate managerial interest in requiring them to support such political activity. And so the Court, as I said before, struck a sensible balance, requiring the payment of agency fees only for collective bargaining. And that balance has governed this area ever since. The Abood holding fit comfortably with this Court's general framework for evaluating claims that a condition of public employment violates the First Amendment. In many cases, over many decades, this Court has addressed how the First Amendment applies when the government, acting not as sovereign but as an employer, limits its workers' speech. Those decisions have granted substantial latitude to state and local and, indeed, the federal government 
to regulate their employees' speech in the interest of operating their workplaces in the way they think will be most effective. Government workers, of course, don't wholly lose their First Amendment rights when they accept their positions. In particular, the Court has guarded against government efforts to leverage the employment relationship to shut down its employees' speech as private citizens. But when the government imposes speech restrictions relating to workplace operations of the kind a private employer also would, the Court reliably upholds them. And when the regulated expression concerns the terms and conditions of employment, which is what collective bargaining is all about, the government, under our case law, really cannot lose because managerial interests there are so obvious and strong. And that's true under all our precedents, even if the expression is also of great interest to the broader public. The question we've made clear is not whether the speech is important. The question is whether it's truly of the workplace, addressed to it, made in it, and most of all, about it. If it is, the government, as employer, gets to regulate it. Above dovetailed with all this law, with the Court's usual, respectful, even solicitous attitude in First Amendment cases toward the regulation of public employees' speech. While protecting those employees' expression about non-workplace matters, the decision enabled a government to regulate speech about core workplace issues, working conditions, pay, discipline, terminations, and the like. The decision did so to allow public sector employers, like their private sector counterparts, to advance what they deemed an important managerial interest, specifically to ensure the presence of an adequately funded, exclusive employee representative to bargain with. In short, Abood offered a paradigmatic example of how the government can regulate speech in its capacity as an employer. But not any longer. Today, the Court succeeds in its six-year crusade to reverse Abood. Now, the government can constitutionally adopt all policies regulating core workplace speech in pursuit of managerial goals, save this single one. Abood's reversal today creates a significant anomaly, an exception applying to agency fees alone from the usual rules governing public employees' speech a unions-only carve-out to our employees' speech law. Today's decision will have large-scale consequences. Public employee unions will lose a secure source of financial support. State and local governments that thought agency fees furthered their interests will need to find new ways of managing their workforces. Across the country, the relationships of public employees and employers will alter in both predictable and wholly unexpected ways. Rarely, if ever, has the Court overruled a decision, let alone one of this import, with so little regard for the usual principles of stare decisis. Stare decisis, the idea that today's Court should generally stand by yesterday's decisions, is a foundation stone of the rule of law. It promotes the even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal doctrine and it contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process by ensuring that decisions are founded in the law rather than in the proclivities of individuals. For those reasons, departures from stare decisis are supposed to be 
exceptional actions demanding special justification. But the majority offers nothing like that here. The standard factors this Court considers when deciding to overrule a decision, and Justice Alito mentioned them, all cut one way, against reversal. Abood's legal underpinnings have not eroded over time. As I've explained, Abood is now, as it was when issued, consistent with this Court's First Amendment public employee law. And contrary to what the majority says, Abood provided a workable standard for courts to apply. In the mine run of cases, everyone understands the difference between collective bargaining, for which agency fees are allowed, and politicking, for which they're not. And one story decisis factor, reliance, dominates all others here and demands keeping Abood. The court today wreaks havoc on entrenched legislative and contractual arrangements. Twenty-two states have enacted statutes authorizing agency fees. Every one of them will now need to come up with new ways elaborated in new statutes to structure relations between government employers and their workers. Still more, thousands of current contracts covering millions of workers provide for agency fees. Usually, this Court recognizes that considerations in favor of stare decisis are at their acme in cases involving property and contract rights. Not today. The majority undoes bargains reached all over the country. It prevents the parties from fulfilling other commitments they've made based on those agreements. It forces the parties immediately to renegotiate once-settled terms and create new trade-offs. It does so knowing that those renegotiations will occur in an environment of legal uncertainty as state governments scramble to enact new labor legislation. It does so with no real clue of what will happen next, of how its action will alter public sector labor relations. It does so even though the government services affected, policing, firefighting, teaching, transportation, affect the quality of life of tens of millions of Americans. The majority majority in its opinion says not to worry about the reliance of both governments and unions. Here, the majority proudly lays claim to its six-year campaign to ban agency fees. During this time, the majority argues public sector unions were on notice that the court had misgivings about Abood and that the constitutionality of agency fees was uncertain And so, says the majority, unions should have structured their affairs accordingly. But that argument reflects a radically wrong understanding of how stare decisis operates. Justice Scalia once confronted a similar argument for disregarding reliance interests and showed how antithetical it was to rule of law principles. He noted first what we always tell lower courts. If a precedent of this court has direct application in a case, yet appears to rest on reasons rejected in some other line of decisions, they should follow the case which directly controls. That instruction, Justice Scalia explained, was incompatible with an expectation that private parties anticipate are overrulings. He concluded, reliance upon a square, unabandoned holding of the Supreme Court is always justifiable reliance. Abood's holding was square. It was unabandoned before today. It was, in other words, the law, however much some were working overtime to make it not.
parties, both unions and governments, were thus justified in relying on it. And they did rely, to an extent rare among our decisions. Reliance interests do not come any stronger than those surrounding Abood, and likewise judicial disruption does not get any greater than what the Court does today. So no, the majority has not overruled Abood for any exceptional or special reason. It has overruled Abood because it wanted to. Because it wanted to pick the winning side in what should be, and until now has been, an energetic policy debate. Some state and local governments and the constituents they serve think that stable unions promote healthy labor relations and thereby improve the provision of services to the public. Other state and local governments and their constituents think to the contrary, that strong unions impose excessive costs and impair those services. Americans have debated the pros and cons for many decades, in large part by deciding whether to use agency fees. Yesterday, 22 states were on one side, 28 on the other. Today, that healthy, that democratic debate ends. The majority has adjudged who should prevail. And maybe most alarming, the majority has chosen the winners by turning the First Amendment into a sword and using it against workaday economic and regulatory policy. Today is not the first time the Court has wielded the First Amendment in such an aggressive way. Just yesterday, we saw another. And it threatens not to be the last. Speech is everywhere, a part of every human activity, employment, health care, securities trading, you name it. For that reason, almost all economic and regulatory policy affects or touches speech. So the majority's road runs long. And at every stop are black-robed rulers overriding citizens' choices. The First Amendment was meant for better things. It was meant not to undermine but to protect democratic governance, including over the role of public sector unions.